be sharing their testimonies from a great experience at Falls Creek. And our preacher this evening will be Mr. Mark Parks. And I know you'll want to come hear him preach. This young man, a student at Baylor, one of the most um, committed young men I've ever known. And he has a message he'd like to share with us. He's been this summer, this last spring, as a matter of fact, doing summer, doing mission work with the BSUs in California. He might mention that tonight, I'm not sure, but I know he's going to have a message for us, as well as our young people. We had a great time, didn't we? And I think you'll be seeing during the invitation this morning the results of a great time at False Creek. Now the 18th chapter, beginning at verse 21, please keep your Bible open, and in a moment when the sermon is there, we'll be preaching from an expository sermon from these words. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. That's equivalent to $10 million. Today, tomorrow, $12 million. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, eighteen dollars. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Thank you, choir and Tony. May need a little more volume, Wayne, please, sir. He was a first-year seminary student at uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He wanted a church so badly. 
He wanted a place of ministry, and so he prayed for that. And the opportunity for ministry just never came. He never really understood why. The whole year, he never had an opportunity to minister. He didn't take a job because he just knew God would give him a church or a place to minister, an education job or something. But it didn't come. And so toward the end of the semester, he got a job driving a bus in the south side of Chicago. It wasn't hard to get a job there because it was a tough section of town. Nobody wanted to drive the bus in South Chicago. The first day on his, on his job, a group of toughs got on the bus and wouldn't pay. They just went on to the back and sat down. And he, didn't, he knew that was, was wrong, but he didn't want to do about it. They were uh, uh, bigger and more than, than, than he, and so he didn't know what he was gonna do about it. He just let it go, let it ride. The next day, the same thing happened, continued for about a week. It just about to eat him up. He couldn't stand it. And so one day when the toughs got on and refused to pay, he just pulled over at the next corner. There was a cop. He asked the cop to get on, and as they rode down the street, he told about the toughs back there, so the cop went back and got their money from them. That was great, except the cop couldn't ride all the way around, couldn't ride the next day. As a matter of fact, he wanted off at the next corner. So when he led him off at the next corner and resumed, turned the corner, he said his lights went out. When he woke up in the hospital, he had a broken jaw and a concussion, and he lost, nearly lost one of his eyes. He said, I can remember in the hospital thinking, where is God when it hurts? And he said, God spoke to my mind to say, you've been praying for a ministry? Well, you've got one. He said, well, where is it? He said, right where you are. When he got out of the hospital, he filed charges on the Tufts. They knew them in the neighborhood. It, so he just went and rounded them up. On the day they brought them to trial, the man was there, the young seminary student was there. And just before the judge pronounced the sentence, he said, Sir, would you tell me how many days collectively these young men will have to spend in jail? I want to spend it in jail for them. The judge said, you're out of order. This has never been done. He said, oh, yes, it has. 1,900 years ago it was done. And so for about six or eight minutes, calmly, collectively, coolly, in that little courtroom in the south side of Chicago, he bore witness to the gospel and to his faith in Christ. Well, the long and short of it, he didn't go to jail for them, but he did begin a jail ministry. And the next year while he attended seminary, five of these young men became Christians. And because of their influence and their tentacles that reached out into the south side of Chicago, he began a Bible study ministry that, be, that continues to today. Oftentimes forgiveness is born out of the womb of pain. For Christ is not so much interested in our comfort as He is in our character. And servants are in training on earth. And the vital part of that curriculum of training is suffering. He wants to teach us how to give and not keep. And so suffering is a vital part of that lesson. As servants, He wants to teach us how to forgive and not resent. He wants to teach us how to forget and not remember. I know this morning when I talk about forgiveness, I'm touching a vital nerve in the Christian life and all of its ramifications of resentment and anger and bitterness. 
In our text this morning, the, the Apostle Peter asked Jesus a dynamic question. How much am I to forgive? How often am I to forgive? Seven times seven? In other words, what are the limits of my forgiveness? It's a question that each one of us has asked. Now I know Peter gets a lot of bad print. And he gets beaten around by our words and our verbiage. But I want you to know that's a question we've all asked. There's not a single one of us this morning that has not grappled and struggled with the matter of forgiveness. How, much, how many times am I to forgive? Seven times seven? That didn't seem too much. That doesn't seem too much to us. But if you lived in Peter's day, it would seem a lot because the scribes and the rabbis taught that when somebody sinned against you, the first time you forgive them, the second time you forgive them, the third time you zap them. Now that's a paraphrase, I know, but the scribes and the rabbis literally felt that you were obligated to forgive only twice. The third time, there was no reason to forgive. And so Peter took the normal and he tripled it and added one for measure. But Jesus said, I tell you, 490 times. Is that what he said? No. Jesus said you're to forgive a limitless number of times. Do you know why? Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't put a limit on how many times we're to forgive? Because he knows we have a slide rule for a mind about these sort of things. And I might forgive 490 times, but watch out on 491. All the pent-up anger and bitterness and resentment will just spew out like a volcano. A preacher had seven kids. He didn't have a family, he had a litter. He had seven kids. One day they were out playing in the backyard and they were, they were playing in the alley and cars were going down the alley and he said, don't get out in the alley. Don't get over, don't jump, don't. And finally he went out to the alley and he took a piece of chalk and he, draw, he drew a line there where his property end, ended and the alley began. And he said, kids, this is the limit here and no further. And he went back inside and a little while he looked out the window and he said, all seven kids had their toes right on the line. You know, We're going to go to our limit on most anything. How many times am I to forgive? Seventy times seven? No, Jesus said, in essence, you're going to have an infinite occasion to apply the fine art of forgiveness. Because somebody's always going to be there to hurt you and to wound you. So therefore, you need an infinite capacity to forgive. Now the text says that there is vertical and horizontal forgiveness. The vertical, vertical forgiveness is that which comes down to, from God to the sinner. The horizontal forgiveness is that which goes out from the sinner to a fellow sinner. I want you to look again at the text and read along as I read aloud this vertical forgiveness, this vertical forgiveness beginning in verse 23. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him $10 million. He had a debt he couldn't pay. He had done something for which there would be no recompense, $10 million. Who could pay that debt? 
But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold in his family. And the slave therefore falling down, prostrated himself, saying, Have patience, I'll repay, forgive me the debt. And the Lord of that slave, verse 27, felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. There are three tremendous ideas in that. Look at that, just to brush them. There is the compassion of the king. There is the release of the sinner. And there is the forgiveness of the wrong. Does that sound familiar? That's vertical forgiveness. The compassion of God. The release of the sinner. You are free of the debt. And the forgiveness of the debt. It's counseled out. Now listen to me carefully. You and I will never be able to forgive others until we grasp the forgiveness of God. You and I will never be able to extend to others forgiveness until we are laid hold by God's marvelous forgiveness of us until we understand vertical forgiveness. And I suppose the greatest illustration of it is Colossians 2. Now I want to read that. You just listen carefully. And you might want to look it up later. It's Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. The greatest picture of vertical forgiveness. Listen carefully. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having counseled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now I want you to look at that with me just a second. He said there is a certificate of debt. It's like an IOU. It was in this day, it was a signed agreement of an indebtedness that the debtor himself signed. It was a signed agreement of indebtedness. He said you had a debt you had to pay. But he said because of Christ Jesus, that debt was counseled out. It's blotted out in the King James and that's the best translation. For when they wrote these debts, this certificate of debts, they wrote it on parchment made out of bulrushes and the ink didn't have acid in it like it does today and so it would just kind of lie on the surface of that writing substance. And, and because the substance was not in plentiful supply, they would use them over and over again. So they'd take a sponge and they'd just blot them out. He said, And watch this thing mount to crescendo. He said you had a debt you couldn't pay, but Jesus Christ took the sponge and he blotted it out. And he mounts to crescendo when he says, and he took that that certificate of debt and nailed it to the cross that has history to it. For when a man had a debt he couldn't pay, they would take that IOU and they would walk over to the door of his house and they'd nail it on the door as a, as a means of shaming him so that when his neighbors came by, they'd say, that man owes a debt and he cannot pay it. And so the scripture says that Jesus Christ took the debt and nailed it to the cross and said, I owe that and I'll pay for it. Now look at that marvelous statement. 
You had a debt, I had a debt, I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace the whole day long. He paid the debt that I could never pay. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, When I see myself before God and I recognize something of what my blessed Lord has done for me at Calvary, I can forgive anybody, anything. I cannot withhold it. I don't even want to. It is that vertical forgiveness that motivates horizontal forgiveness. And so Corey Ten Boom was sitting in church one day and she saw a man there. She recognized him. He was the Nazi guard who stood at her door, the door of her, her concentration camp where she suffered for years and her sister died. And she said, I looked at him and I said in my mind, I'll forgive you. But in order to do that, I had to see him in the shadow of the cross. Because of what God has done, he said, because of the compassion of the king, we must forgive others. Now look, at the, vertical, at the horizontal forgiveness, here was this slave forgiven $10 million. He went right out, found one of his fellow slaves. You see, horizontal forgiveness is that forgiveness that goes out from fellow sinners to fellow sinners. And he found this guy and he said, hey, you owe me 18 bucks. I want my money. And he got him by the throat. And did you notice what he said? This slave began to entreat him, have mercy on me. Sound, sound familiar? Just exactly what had happened to him. Now do you see the point? And the text says there that he was unwilling to forgive. Now listen carefully. Forgiveness is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of can I forgive, it's a matter of will I forgive. It's not, do I have the capacity to forgive? It's, am I willing to be, for, to be a forgiving person? Now, there are two things that need to be said concerning horizontal forgiveness, and we're that there in that point in, your in, the, in the outline that you have. One is, to fail to forgive others is, is nothing less than hypocritical. I mean, it's to take from God and give nothing back. It's nothing less than hypocritical. Secondly, not to forgive is to, is to bring yourself under the tortures. Did you see what that said? He said if he fails to forgive, he'll be handed over to the torturers. That word means torments. It means it's the same word in the Bible for plagues. It's the word that is used for demonic oppression. Ah. It's the same word that's used when people in that ancient world were put on racks and their bodies were literally rent apart in excruciating pain. Now I'm told that when archaeologists begin to make a find, a major find, they begin to be very careful about what they're doing. They begin to delicately sift through every grain 
lest they lose something or miss something. Now just hang with me just a minute. I'm going to be very careful at this point. I don't want us to miss the impact of what this passage says. Writes Ray Stedman of these verses, this is what it means not to forgive. There is growing resentment. There is the gall of anger and bitterness. It's a terrible feeling, he writes, and we cannot escape it. We feel strongly this separation from one another. And every time we think of these people who have hurt us, we feel boiling within the acid of hate and bitterness eating away at our calm and peace." End of quote. If you can't forgive, he said, you're going to be the most tormented person in the world. You're going to be put on the rack. You're going to feel inside of you day after day that seething cauldron of hate and anger. You can't escape it. It's not worth it, is it? Leonard Holt was a pillar of the community. He was a faithful member of the church. He was on the board. He was a scout troop leader. He was active in civic affairs. He worked in a small paper mill in Pennsylvania. And he was good, a good employee. One morning he arrived late at work. He pulled his station wagon into the parking lot and got out. Under his belt concealed were two pistols and 30 rounds of ammunition. He went into that paper mill and unannounced, he just opened fire. He pumped 30 rounds of lead into his colleagues, his friends. And when it was over, there was just a bloody massacre. When the police finally came, they found Leonard Holt crouched in a door, snarling, bitter, cursing man who had to be killed. The little community was shocked. They couldn't, exp they couldn't understand it. Pillar of the community. They began to investigate and think back and reminisce. Two of the victims he killed were men who were advanced beyond him in his job, and he deserved it, and he never got over that. He resented it. Shortly after that, he began to drive wildly so people wouldn't even ride in a carpool with him. A neighbor was threatened for over a silly little dispute. They'd been neighbors for years. Time magazine ran the story, had his picture in it. Under the picture of this caption, Leonard Holt, responsible, respectable, resentful. Does that explain why some people climb up in the top of towers and just open fire down below on people they don't even know? I think it might turned over to the torturers. Does that, does that explain why there's so many child batterings in this American world? I think it might. So that Rhode Island University once said, said recently, the most unsafe place in America besides rioting in the streets and full-scale war is the American home.
For I want you to understand the impact of this. It says that when a man refuses to forgive, he experiences that seething, boiling resentment that has to explode sometime or another. Now you say, well, that's good for that day, but that doesn't say anything to me. Look, you know what verse 35 said? It said, so shall my heavenly Father do to you, turn you over to the torture. What's the answer to all this? The solution is this way. First of all, we're to focus first and foremost. You say, how can I forgive? First and foremost, you need to focus on God's forgiveness of you. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget not of all of His benefits. Bless His holy name, who has forgiven all thine iniquities and healed all thy diseases. Secondly, you need to begin to deal openly and honestly with the person who has hurt you. Shouldn't you, he said, shouldn't you do it? You say, how would I know when I've forgiven? How do I know when I've forgiven somebody? Well, you can see their face and not feel, or you can say their name, or you can talk about them and not feel that churning inside. Or you can be willing to meet them face to face and not want to run away or turn away, look away. Does that sound like anybody you know? This and I'm through. This lady was living in Los Angeles in an apartment complex with her husband. She was a godly woman, deeply religious and vitally committed to God. One morning, her husband left for work. She was getting ready to get out of her robe and start housework. She heard a knock on the door of her apartment. She didn't usually answer the door that early in the morning because she just didn't look presentable, but for some reason she did. There was a man standing there. She was frightened just for a minute, but when he said, can you tell me if the manager apartment is in this complex or where is it? She said, no, it's not in this complex. It's, it's in the next complex. And he thanked her and she shut the door. She turned to begin her housework. She heard a knock at the door. She said, fear just swept over me and, and I, I started not to answer, but I did. She said, when I opened the door, he was there again. He pushed his way in and drew a knife. He told her to go into the next room and disrobe, take off her clothing. And he ripped out the phone and he began to shut the blinds, pull the curtains, true story, to prepare for the attack. In the next room, she said, I lifted my voice to God in prayer. And she said, I felt this overwhelming enveloping of the grace of God upon my, my life. God put His angels in charge of her. 
He encompassed about her with His angels. And she said, I felt boldness and power. And so she said, I walked back into the room where He was and I said, this body of mine belongs to Jesus Christ. I've committed to Him. I'm dedicated to Him. And whatever you do to me, you must do to God. You must do to Jesus. He contends with those who contend against His own. Psalm 39. And he, she said, I had power and boldness. And he said, she said, the young man stood there for a moment and he began to tremble. And he laid down his knife. She sat down with him on the couch and she said, has anybody ever told you about Jesus Christ? He said, no. She opened up the scripture and for an hour and a half, she sat on the couch with him, shared the gospel. Great big old tears came into his eyes and down his face when he invited Jesus Christ into his heart. She said, now tell me about yourself. What can I do for you now? He said, I'm from the deep south. I've come to California. I've been on drugs. I have no money, no friends, nowhere to go. She said, I can't help you in those things, but I have some money. She said, my husband's gone in the only car we have, but the bank's just about four blocks from here. Come on, let me get dressed and we'll go to the bank. I'll give you some money. You can go home. She went back in her bedroom, changed clothes while he waited outside. She went with him down to the bank, walked up to the teller window, him standing beside her. She withdrew some money. They went outside. She handed it to him. So now I want you to go home and begin a new life. He said, lady, you are a trip. And they stood there for a long moment just staring at each other. And they embraced. And he left in one direction. And she went back to her apartment never to see him again. As she turned to leave, he, he, he called after her. He said, Betty, forgive me. And she said, I do forgive you. Now, if she could forgive him, you can too. Pray with me. Father, we stand today in the shadow of the cross to understand that we have been forgiven. Not perfect, but forgiven. And when I think of what my blessed Lord has done for me at Calvary, I can forgive anybody, anything. I can't withhold it. I don't even want to withhold it. I pray, God, that you'll lay hold on, our, on us today of that forgiveness.
and help us to escape the torture, the anguish, the bitterness of an unforgiving spirit. And I pray, Lord, for two specific things today. For the person who has never experienced, never known the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus and His finished work, I pray for him or her to come and receive that forgiveness that comes just when we trust Jesus by faith and repent of our sin. When we ask him, Lord, remember me when you come to your, to your kingdom. When we pray the sinner's prayer. And I pray for those of us who have lived days and months and years in the resentment of the hurt of others. And I pray that you'll give us grace and courage to take those horizontal steps today. And this is your invitation. I pray that you'll get glory in it now in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'll invite you to stand and I'll ask you to come as our choir sings.